Saca a punça. Hello and welcome to the Point Blank series of Indicast. I am Abhishek and today we have with us a man who has worn many hats. Now pardon the cliche but we are talking about the Economist's business affairs editor. He is a celebrated book writer. He knows what it is to be a New York Times bestseller. He is a serious gamer and a pretty good drummer as well but very modestly describes himself as a, the least musical of a musical family. I'm talking about Tom Standage who's been with us on a couple of occasions. He's written a very crisp cover story on the iPad which has uh, just come out in this issue of The Economist. And he's joining me on Skype from London, uh, a place which is uh, going through a lot of weather hormonal changes. Tom, thanks a lot for being a sport and joining me again. Hello again, good to be here. Before we start off with the topic, how bad is it out there? We've been looking at the pictures on the internet that London is going through uh, lots of changes that people were not too ready of. Uh, the snow and all of it? Well, there isn't much snow around at the moment, but we did have quite a lot of snow a couple of weeks ago by our standards, not very much by other people's standards, but this is happening more often now that London is getting, and large parts of Britain are being shut down by snow, and the government always says, well, this doesn't happen very often, so it's not worth investing in the way that, say, Sweden or Switzerland does in equipment to clear the roads and so on, and, you know, it won't happen next year, and then the next year it happens again. So I suppose we're wondering whether this is a the sort of thing that, that climate scientists say is going to happen more often, that we get more extreme weather. Um, right. This year in particular, there's something called the Arctic Oscillation, which seems to have made Britain particularly cold. So I mm. hope this isn't um, the shape of things to come and we won't have to upgrade and buy all those snow plows and things like that. But it's particularly tragic that the trains and everything else, just, you know, the slightest hint of snow brings them shuddering to a halt. Because I was in Switzerland last week for the Davos conference and um, it was a very impressive they have all the infrastructure there and everything just keeps on going when it snows and one morning I came out of the hotel and there was enough snow to stop Britain from <laughs> doing anything and they were already clearing the roads and the snow plows were out and the, the planes were still running and the trains were still running and so forth so I think it makes Britain look rather pathetic that we can't cope with you know, an inch or so of snow. It's not going to get any better because I read that there is a cold weather alert for the next weekend where the temperatures could fall sub-zero again. So best of luck with coping with that. Exactly. I mean, it's been an unusually long period of close to uh, freezing weather and um, normally it's getting warmer again by now, but um, yes, has been unusual. So we've still got all our winter coats on and that sort of thing. Oh, great. Well, let's get into it now. Uh, First of all, congratulations on a very, very good article on the iPad and a beautiful uh, illustration as well where you have uh, Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs Jobs is a saint. I'm glad you liked it. It's been very... um, widely picked up that cover. A number of newspapers have done analyses of the coverage of the iPad launch and they've shown all the the front covers and newspaper headlines that have been done and um, our cover has been given prominence. What I like about it is the it gives you the idea that you know this is a big deal but it's also having a bit of fun with it. We're not taking it too seriously and we talk about the Jesus tablet Right. in the coverage and um, you know a lot of people do seem to think that this tablet is going to have a miraculous impact on this industry or that industry and uh, so we wanted to um, we wanted to say this is a big deal but we also wanted to to be a bit silly right what was your first reaction Tom you've been covering Apple for a pretty long time and for a moment if you assume that you are not a business editor and just a hardcore tech savvy Apple fan what was your first impression when you played around with the iPad Right. Well, I have to say, I haven't played with one, so 
our correspondent who was in San Francisco went and played with one at the launch, and I've spoken to a couple of other people who have as well. Right. Um, so I haven't played with one directly, and I was in Europe. I had to write our coverage from here. That said, all the people who have played with it say the same thing, which is you have to see it to believe it, in particular the speed of it. And that the, as happened with the iPhone, the idea that you're actually handling a physical thing with the touch screen. So the way the iPhone does scrolling, for example, where, you know, things slow down and when they, when you reach the end of a, of a page when you're scrolling it, it kind of bounces off the end. Ah, right. Um, that sort of physicality is apparently even more amazing on the iPad because it has this new chip that Apple has built itself, the A4 chip. And that gives it an enormous amount of processing power. And so th that really seems to be the main reaction of people who play with it, that the speed really affects the way you perceive it. And it feels like manipulating an object, a physical object, like manipulating the pages of a book or something like that, and not manipulating a pretend object through a computer. So I, I think that's very striking. And I'm expecting that chip to show up in the next version of the iPhone this summer. So the iPhone Mark IV, and I don't know what they'll call it, but I think the general assumption is that that chip will also be at the heart of the new iPhone, which will make it much faster and will also give it a much better battery life. Right. Uh, in your article, you also mentioned that and uh, Apple itself is uh, confessing that they have uh, positioned the iPad as a device between the iMac or the laptop and the iPhone. And a few of them are saying that it's, it's a gadget that we never needed. What, what is the need that you think it will satisfy and what Apple would have perceived when they launched iPad? Yes, I think there are several answers, and I don't think Apple itself knows exactly how this product will be used and exactly who will use it. Mm -hmm. So I think they're rather cleverly hedging their bets. Firstly, they haven't included a lot of features that people expected, like cameras in it. Is that um, a strategic call? They keep doing this all the time. Uh, well, I don't think you need a camera there right away. I think they wanted to keep the price down for the first version okay. of the product. I think they wanted to make it simple and cheap so that they had the potential to sell it to people as a, a simple computer. So one way of looking at the iPad is, and you probably have this as well, those of us who are known to be good with computers end up doing tech support you know, for our families and for our mothers and their friends and all this kind of stuff. You, right. you know about this, I'm sure. Right, so what I've seen a lot of people say, and this was my reaction when I saw it, was you know, this is a computer that my grandma could use. Um, I don't want her to have to worry about viruses. I don't want her to have to worry about file and save and open and close and navigating folders and any of that stuff. If you look at the iPad, it's very much like the, the original Macintosh in 1984. It was meant to be a computer for the rest of us. It was meant to be simple to use. It was meant to be an information appliance. Of course, Macs got much more powerful and much more complicated, and you could do wonderful things on them now, but they've kind of moved away from that original goal of making a computer that was simple enough for everyone. So I think one way that this could work is that this could be a device which appeals to people who find computers too complicated now, who don't right. want to have a computer in the study and go to the study and do the computing. So exactly people like my mother or my grandmother who might, you know, want to do email and might want to look on Facebook and they don't want to do anything too complicated. So that's one possibility. Another possibility is that this is a device which will appeal to people who are traveling, either as business travelers or on holiday, and they don't want to take a laptop. So they want something that's more advanced than a phone, but less advanced than a laptop and less bulky. Now, I found with several foreign trips that I've done, sometimes if I'm going somewhere like I went to Uganda last year, I didn't want to take a laptop with me to Africa because I was going to have to carry it with me everywhere. Right. So I just took my iPhone, and for a week I had my iPhone as my main computer. 
Uh-huh. And um, it actually did pretty well. Um, you know, I didn't try and write any blog postings on it or anything like that, but it was pretty good. There were a few things it couldn't do. It couldn't download photos from my camera, and you know, obviously I could have done with a bigger screen and so forth. So the iPad would actually fit beautifully into that model. But if I'm on a business trip or if I'm just going on holiday, it's a computer that's you know not as good as taking a laptop, but it's a lot smaller and lighter. Will go for longer and will let me do most of the things that I want to do on the plane. And on holiday, I want to read books, I want to watch videos, I want to listen to music, I want to do a bit of browsing, I want to go on Facebook maybe if the hotel has Wi-Fi, and so on. So right. I think that's another possibility. And I think that's why Apple has made these productivity apps, the iWork apps, because they give you the option of doing uh, you know, quite serious work on it. You can actually write documents on it if you want to. You know, there's even a spreadsheet program. So I think they're not bundling them with every iPad. It's optional whether you use them or not. And it would be very interesting to see how many downloads of those apps they get and how popular that becomes. Because the most dramatic possibility for the iPad is that this is actually a future direction for the whole of Apple's computing lineup, that this could be a bigger market because of the grannies and because of the business users. If you put them all together, this could be a bigger market than the market for Macs. And you know, my wife's reaction when she saw the iPad, and she's not, she's a doctor, she's not a, um, a computer nerd, but she said, you know, this is obviously the future of computing. Mm. Um, so she was quite uh, struck by by it. And this is the funny thing, that lots of people who don't normally express opinions about computers seem to react, usually in a positive way, to, to the iPad. So I think there are many ways that this could go, and I don't think Apple itself knows which one is, is it going to be. Is this a companion machine for Mac users, for power users? Is this a device for people who find existing computers too complicated? Or is this the evolution of the Mac? So that's my take on it. That's a very interesting take because you say there's a little bit of everything for the ones who are not so much into laptops and computers and geeky and with the business travelers, uh, you throw in a few more apps and then there's something in it for the ones who write blog posts and uh, who are far more cued into the Internet. Right. You know, I do know that you like to draw parallels with history and uh, you've written a book on uh, the edible history of humanity and the history of the world in six glasses where you draw comparisons with the past. Now, TechCrunch, a very popular blog in the US did something very similar. What they did was they compared, uh, there was a visual on that blog which compared a rock from the Stone Age with the iPad of 2010. I don't know if you've seen this. And in the comparison chart, uh, they've got a cross against the features saying that camera, multitasking, changeable battery, standard ports, a rock is comparable to the iPad. Both can't do any yeah, of this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and there is a, yeah. a tick for the iPad for the touchscreen. Well, I think I think a lot of those comparisons were unfair. I mean, there were a lot of um. I mean, with a rock is obviously an unfair <laughs> comparison. But um, there were so many rumours floating around about the iPad before it came out that I think it was inevitable that the geekier end of the spectrum people were going to be disappointed that you know it doesn't it, it doesn't make coffee and it's not a time machine. I mean, one of the people who has played with this machine says that actually you don't really need multitasking on the iPad because it's so fast that when you exit to the home screen and then launch another app. It does it so quickly, it's like switching in real time between the apps. And the apps, when they reopen, they come back to where they were when you left them. So it may just be that the answer to multitasking is incredible speed. And if you did that on the iPhone and you could switch from the calendar to the email you know, instantly because right. the chip was so fast, then you wouldn't actually need to run multiple apps at once. 
And multiple apps at once is exactly the sort of thing that Granny is going to have trouble with. So this is a classic example of something that power users want and uh, most people probably don't care about. So I think that's why it's not there in version one. And if it turns out that most iPad sales are techies buying them for their mummies, then you know there'll be less urgency to add it. But if nearly all the iPad sales are going to existing Mac and iPhone users and they are a geekier crowd who want features, then those features will be added. So I think the analogy, the best analogy, is not with a rock, uh, but I think is with the Macintosh 128K in 1984. It only had one app at a time. It had very limited memory. By modern standards, it was you know, very, very crude. But it was Apple taking an idea from somewhere else, from Xerox, of graphical computing and making it into a product for the first time. That's what they've done with tablets here. There are all these tablet computers floating around, and you know, they all have some good things about them. The Kindle's pretty cool, but you know, it doesn't have a color screen, and so on. Apple has just said, this is how you do it, folks. It's then going to build on that. So I'm sure that more features will be added. The one possibility is that the camera may actually be in there already. I mean, there are some graphics of the iPad, and the, uh, the teardown, the inside of the case, seems to suggest that there's a space for a camera. So I suspect that Apple has been prototyping it with a camera, and uh, they could add one if they wanted to. But I think they're going to say, look, let's keep the price down first. Let's not overwhelm people with features. And then we've got shots in the locker that we can add later, depending on what people want. Right. Like you mentioned, I also quote you from uh, your report. You say that Apple is known for taking half-baked ideas and then showing the rest of the world how to do them properly. We've done that three times. We did it with graphical computing. It took the Xerox Park idea and said, look, folks, this is how you do graphical computing. Uh, It did it again with the iPod, which was not the first digital music player. There were lots of others beforehand, but they were useless compared to the iPod. Then, obviously, it did it with the smartphone. People have been making smartphones that can go on the Internet for nearly a decade, and uh, they've never really taken hold. And the the iPhone really, you know, you have an app store and and so forth, and you have a touch screen. I mean, it really, there was no reason why another company couldn't have come along and done that five years ago in practice. And this is what Apple does again and again and again. the thing is, it's nearly always right. That's true. And in fact, it has dented a few of the industries, like, for instance, telecom, the iPhone. You have entertainment through Pixar and then music was changed completely with the iPod. So now, how will this move be seen? Which are the industries that a couple of industries might think, oh, my God, Apple is intruding in our space again. What, what do you think iPad will mean today? Well, the most obvious impact is in book publishing. And already there's been a huge impact for ebooks. The trouble with the Kindle is that when you sell an ebook, if you're a publisher, if you sell an ebook to Amazon, the standard rate in the industry is 50% of the hardback price. So a typical hardback book in America will be, you know, $26, $30. So that means Amazon is paying $14 or $15 for the ebook, and it is then selling it for $10. Mm-hmm. Um, so Amazon is making a loss on the books that it's selling on the Kindle. And um, the reason it's doing this is because it wants to build market share for the Kindle. So it's um, luring people in with cheap e-books, and then it's going to go and sort the uh, pricing out with the publishers later. And we all knew that they were going to have this argument with the publishers this year, that Amazon would say to them, look, you know, we're selling these books at $10, but we're having to pay you 15 for them. This won't do, and it can't go on. And Amazon was expected to say, therefore, you must give them to us for 10 and the publishers were going to reply, actually, no, we're not going to cut our prices, so you're going to have to raise your prices. And it wasn't clear who was going to win. And Apple has now weighed in on the side of the publishers saying, uh, we're going to let them set their own prices. And so instantly, this has led Macmillan to say that, therefore, it doesn't want to sell e-books to Amazon anymore because it wants to um, be able to set higher prices. Amazon initially responded by pulling all of Macmillan's products out of its stores, both physical and e-book stores. And then on Sunday, it issued this um, statement saying that it was capitulating and it was going to allow Macmillan to set pricing. So mm-hmm. Apple has instantly changed the, the face of that industry. And the interesting thing is that Apple is seen as the villain by many people in the music industry. It has so much power with the iTunes music right. store. 
in fact walmart was very unhappy and all the music retail outlets said that uh, they were going on an immediate strike of sorts against uh, the music companies because itunes was selling individual record songs for 99 cents yeah, exactly this time around with ebooks amazon wanted to be the apple like company it wanted to have the device that was like the ipod of books which is what it called for kindle and so amazon then attracted the same sort of anger from the publishers that it was too powerful and so apple coming in later has been able to say okay well um look we're a much better partner for you than amazon you don't like i mean the publishers don't like amazon anyway because it discounts their books very heavily even the paper books and of course the retailers um, book retailers the bookstores can't stand amazon because it's putting them out of business so amazon really is a very big villain a much bigger villain to books than um, apple is to music so apple can come into publishing as the good guy and that's exactly what it's done apple has blessed the field and says you know ebooks are good we're going to do them we're going to sell them here's our device for doing them people are going to say okay if apple's doing this we could take this seriously people were asking me before christmas which ebook reader should i buy and i said none of them uh, they're all going to look prehistoric when the apple device comes out that happens all the time like, right but this really did i mean my comment when the ipad came out what i wrote on facebook was it makes the kindle look prehistoric and I think there was another writer on Time or Newsweek or somewhere who said that it made the Kindle look like something from the 1980s. Mm. Um, and I think that's true. It really does. It makes the Kindle look very old. I think there'll be a new Kindle this year with a color screen, but I think Amazon is now very much on the back foot here. Anyway, so book publishing is the, is the big one. I think the one area where I was disappointed by the iPad announcement, because I, as I say, I wasn't disappointed by the lack of hardware or software features in it. What I was hoping for more of was I was hoping that Apple would have a platform for selling publications such as newspapers and magazines as well as books. And um, obviously they have this new iBookstore for selling eBooks, but they said nothing about magazines and newspapers except to show a very nice app from the New York Times of what you know that will look like on the on the iPad, because there really isn't a standard in this field. You know there are lots and lots of different ways to put magazines and newspapers, including magazines like The Economist, onto these devices. At the moment, it's very difficult for us and for other publications to know how to respond and which devices to go on, and we have to do slightly different versions for everything. And so I was really hoping that Apple would help to you know consolidate things and set some standards there. And they haven't said anything about that, which is annoying for us from a business point of view because it means that uh, there's still uncertainty about what Apple will do in that regard. So I would like to have heard a bit more of that. So in that sense, that change is still to come. I think Apple will shake that up. Um, this is why we you know, called it the Jesus tablet and so forth. A lot of people seem to think that this device can save America's newspaper industry. Or I was going to come to that well, very soon. You also mentioned about yes. uh, there is a rather, uh, if I may use the word, sweeping statement in the report which says that tomorrow newspaper industries could shut down voluntarily and get onto a completely new medium of uh, disseminating this information on the digital media and especially because not because of Kindle, but because of uh, the Apple iPod. I think there will be, I think, you know, 10 years from now, you know, it will be normal for people to read magazines and newspapers on these kinds of devices. And it won't just be Apple, there'll be other devices too. But the difficulties that newspapers face now, which is that they have seen their advertising revenues collapse, their classified advertising has all migrated to the, to the web, to places like Craigslist. Um, they've got fewer subscribers. They've got young people who are used to um, reading news on the Internet. And, of course, that means that on the Internet they're not charging for news most of the time. So newspapers in America in particular, but in other parts of the world too, have a big, big business model problem. And the idea that the switch to electronic media will save them, I think, is wrong. 
because it will take too long. I mean, these products cost too much at the moment. Even the most basic Kindle is $269. And, you know, there are some e-readers. There's one Sony, I think, that costs less than $200. This is quite expensive. So expecting millions of people to buy these devices and then start subscribing to electronic versions of newspapers, it's going to happen in the long run, but it's not going to happen this year or next year. I mean, it's going to take a decade for a significant number of readers to move over. And in that time, an awful lot of these publications are going to go bust. So our take on this is that this is going to make the strong stronger and the weak weaker. That the strong publications that can survive until that transition has happened will have this great advantage that they will be able to get rid of their physical printing and distribution. And that will mean huge cost savings for them. And that will be a great benefit. They'll be able to deliver things electronically much more quickly and easily and cheaply. I do think that the iPad represents the future of media consumption for newspapers and magazines. But because that future does not come into place tomorrow, the companies that are in trouble now can't rely on this to save their bacon. What's your personal opinion on uh, the news that is being read out uh, by readers for free on the Internet? For example, Murdoch had come some time back and very publicly announced that it's very foolish of all of us to do that because we didn't know ways to curb this because we pay a lot of money to our journalists. And when all you guys read this for free, it doesn't doesn't work with me. What's your opinion, whether we deserve to read the information which is there or, or will premium articles be the future of uh, online? Obviously, this is a big debate at the moment, and it's sort of a religious debate. On the one hand, there are people who say, information ought to be free and publications ought to be reaching out to as wide an audience as possible. But it can't work for everyone. Not every site can be popular enough to generate enough advertising. For a newspaper like The Sun, which is Britain's most widely read newspaper, actually I think that the advertising-based free distribution model makes a lot of sense. But for a newspaper like The Wall Street Journal, which Murdoch also owns, then charging for access, I mean, it's, it's the one that's done it for the longest and made the greatest success. So I think there's going to be this split. The big problem is for papers in the middle that aren't really as popular as the sun, they don't have that many readers, but they don't have any content that's a specialist and has the perception of high value that, say, the Wall Street Journal does. I mean, the Wall Street Journal is an invaluable tool for many people in business, and they are very happy to subscribe to it online because it's so useful to them in their in their work. It provides you know in-depth business reporting and so on. Now, right. our view with the Economist is that similarly, we provide something that's quite an unusual package of content and uh, that we should be able to charge for it. In fact, we've increased our cover price during the recession. We've increased our readership continuously for the past 25 years. And there's this hybrid model in the middle, which the Financial Times has pioneered, where you give people a, a certain number of articles per month, and then after they've read 10 or whatever, you, you, you right. have the paywall pop up. And that way you can still have people, bloggers linked to stories, and you can still have people come in, and it acts as a shop window. So um, a lot of publications are going to try with that. But I think this is the year we're going to see a lot of experimentation in that area. We're going to see a lot of newspapers putting up paywalls, and we're going to see what it does to their revenues, and we're going to see which ones could do this and which ones can't. And I think the answer is that some of them will be able to charge and some of them won't. So there isn't a clear answer yet, and I don't think it will be the same answer for all publications. There will be quite a spectrum of possibilities. Right. In fact, Brendan Greeley, the tech and policy correspondent at The Economist, one of your friends was here, and he said that in spite of uh, The Economist's very steep online price that you mentioned, it is still the second most subscribed newspaper on the Kindle. So people do I buy it. First, I think it, I think it's the number one. I think it's the ah, number sorry. one. Publication. And I quoted him wrong then. Yeah, much must be. Yeah, and it, I, well, it may vary slightly, but I mean, it's much more expensive than other publications. Like the New Yorker is something like three or four dollars a month, and I mm-hmm. think we are thirteen or so. So we're much more. We think that there is an opportunity for us because of the particular product that we that we produce, which is to sort of encapsulate everything from a week into a single product that you can, you know 
you've got everything in your hand for that week that you need if you're getting onto a plane or something. Um, We think that works brilliantly with a mobile device like the iPad or the Kindle because, you know, we are all about encapsulating stuff and boiling it down and putting it into one place for you rather than providing links to thousands and thousands of pages that you might want to go and read. We are doing the filtering and saying, um, you don't need to go and read all that stuff. We've done it for you and here's what you need to know. So we think that our particular product does fit well with these new e-reader devices and tablet devices and that uh, we're quite optimistic that we'll be able to charge readers on these devices. I don't think that's true for everyone. That's true. And you mentioned about covering everything, and you are just a bunch of 70 journalists who cover the whole world in that magazine every week, week after week. So that's very surprising. And also, just one final question. Tom, when you opine on The Economist about, say, an iPad is good or bad, then is it your personal opinion that goes up there and stays with The Economist for long, uh, for life rather, in the archives, or... Uh, Is it that you you sit together and say, look, it's going in The Economist. We need to be sure uh, whether to take a pro or a con stance to it. Because I remember, just to add something more, uh, Economist had predicted the end of social networking sites uh, about a decade back. It it was in some context altogether, but certain big decisions, is it taken by the author himself or how how does it work? So the way it works is... We have an editorial conference on Monday, and when you want to write a leader putting forward a point of view, then, you know, you have to stand up in front of everyone and say, this is what I'm going to say. And then everyone in the room, whatever subject they cover, can say, well, what about this and what about that? So it's my opinion to start with, but then I may have to modify it in some areas depending on what other people say. And it may be that, you know, sometimes I get up and say, I think we should say a we should write a leader on this, and, you know, I'm the only person who thinks that. So then everyone says, no, rubbish, you you can't do that. So basically the expert in each field is asked to provide their view, and then other people weigh in as well, and we come to a sort of consensus view, and the editor then ensures that everyone is happy with what we did. So it's sort of like a hive mind in the sense that, you know, we all uh, have the chance to weigh in, and we all expect it to stand behind the opinions that the economist has. So in this particular case, it is my opinion. I wasn't really opposed by anybody in the meeting. I said, this is a... This is a big deal, but it's not a big enough deal to save the newspapers. Most people thought that was a reasonable point of view, and so that's what we ended up saying. So I can't remember what we said about social networking um, a decade ago. I must go and have a look. We had a report in the same issue with Steve Jobs on the cover on social networking Uh um, by my colleague Martin Giles in San Francisco, and um, I thought it was very good. I mean, he was saying what the impact was on social life and on business and so on, and he was saying this is here to stay and it is a big shift. So perhaps we have reversed a previous position, but I don't remember saying what we said 10 years ago. It may have been, I mean, of course, there was a, a bit of a false dawn in uh, social networking with Friendster and so forth right. back then. And it was, a, it was a rather different form of social networking. And uh, it wasn't as easy to use. I mean, my mum is on Facebook. And, um, you know, Facebook is, if you think about it, an amazingly powerful collaborative tool of the kind that businesses have been saying that they need for years. And there it is, and consumers are using it uh, in their hundreds of millions. But I'd have to go and check what we said. But whatever it is, you guys have a very tough job on your hands because you have to know a little bit of everything. So whether it's genocide in Sudan, someone has to take a call. What, what way the article should veer? They follow these stories for years and years. And so the other thing we try and do is recall what we've said before and be consistent with what we've said. Right. So sometimes, you know, we will say, well, we used to think this, but now we think this and so on. So the idea is to present a view of the world that is both consistent with what we've said before and internally consistent. So we won't be, you know, in favor of free trade on one page and then against it on another page. The idea is to be consistent and give people a consistent point of view. That's nicely put. Well, thanks a lot, Tom, for your time. I've taken a little bit more than I had promised. And I think I've eaten into your lunchtime a little bit. Yeah, I've got to go and have lunch now. That's fine.
Thank you again for doing this with me. Well, thank you for your questions. It's always good to talk to you. Thanks very much.